This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book. The covering title of the series being Christian Fundamentals. This evening it is number two of a series dealing with the scriptures entitled It Is Written. Those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little while and read together with us Jeremiah chapter 36. Our subject, as you know, in this series is to consider the book itself. We were looking last time at the composition of this book we call the Bible. I didn't go very far into it. I did draw attention to the way in which the books written by men at different periods, living under different reigns, different customs, different parts of the earth, without apparently having collusion one with another, yet when they're all put together, the opening words of the first book are already anticipating the closing words of the last. No more curse on the last page of the New Testament is God's answer to Cursed is the land for thy sake which comes in the opening chapters of the first book and so on right through. Well now, this evening, I want to take another point of view. One of the things we are concerned about is this book itself. Can we trust it? Is it true? Uh, how do we go about, how do we set about proving it to be true? Well, one person may say, well, it says, thus saith the Lord. Say, so, yes, well, if it says so, uh, we must give it a hearing. But because it says so, it doesn't follow that it's true, does it? I mean, I could stand up here and say, thus saith the Lord, and then tell you something that means you've got to dip your hands into your pocket and put a certain amount into a certain collection, and if you were fools enough to think it was thus saith the Lord, you'd all have to do it. But saying thus saith the Lord wouldn't prove it. But there is one thing that would have to be put into operation if you lift out from this book the words, thus saith the Lord. And you lift out a good many passages too if you'd like to go through them, friends. It wouldn't be a bad plan if you did. Now you've got in front of you those columns of words. Thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. Well, look in between those columns and see what sort of Lord he is. See whether he ever truckles. See whether he ever in any sense condones evil. See whether he ever tells a lie. And by the time you've got the character of the Lord who's spoken, you say, that's good enough for me. If that's the Lord who stands behind this book and then afterwards says, thus saith the Lord, I better hear it. You see, my point is that we cannot prove it by what we call just ordinary evidences for more than one reason. We haven't got all the evidences we'd like, and even if we had, we're not always able to use them. One person may have an addiction to the evidence of archaeology. But I believe I could bring to this chapel three eminent archaeologists who would prove to you that three different pharaohs were proved to be the pharaoh of the Exodus. Well, what proves too much proves nothing. So it's no proof of the Bible at all. But you haven't got time enough, friends, to verify all the references that all the archaeologists have brought forward. 
if your eternal salvation is depending upon what they're digging up in Egypt or in Babylon, you, you, you may be dead and you may be unforgiven before you get that evidence that will prove to a surety that this is the word of the living God. And so we could go on, we get another person who would assure you that unless you can construe and translate the Hebrew and the Greek of the Old and the New Testament, you won't know where you are and you won't be able to tell anybody else where they are. Well, don't let us forget that it's very, very true that unless you know the original scriptures, you cannot say, thus saith the Lord, in the sense that you can, if you do know what they say, because the best translation that's ever been made can never be a substitute for what God himself actually said, because all words bring their uncles and their aunts, their friends and their cousins with them. We can't get rid of the family connections. And the further you go from the original source, the bigger the crowd goes. But God has so written this book that the wayfaring man, though a fool, need not err when he's seeking salvation. I don't think there's anything simpler in the whole of the human language and yet so profound as one verse of the New Testament that's been translated into practically every language that has been put down on paper yet. And that is John 3.16. There's practically, that can be understood by an Eskimo or a Negro or uh, an Indian. It doesn't matter where you come from. Uh, whether you're old or young, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're scholar or unlearned, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Why? Yes, it's a whole thing in a nutshell. The very simplicity of it almost compels you to say, that sounds like truth. Would you try to imagine calling together some of the greatest brains that have ever been Say in any one generation, if you don't like to pick on your own generation, we'll go back, say, a hundred years, or go forward in imagination. Say, now, I want you to start off the Bible. Have a fresh start. Some people find fault with the way in which the Bible starts in the book of Genesis. Now, you tell us. Can you imagine what it would be like, friends? Can you imagine it ever getting into the hearts and minds of a man who feels the burden of sin and needs a saviour. That's why this book was written. That's why Moses didn't load the first chapter up with all scientific terms that some people demand. He got over that as quick as ever he could, and said as little as he could, because he was going to bring in one man who failed in order that he may become the type and the shadow of the true man that gloriously succeeded, both named Adam in the scriptures. Then another point I would like you to notice, and that is this, how did you come to know your own name and address? I believe I could go to some people and say to them, look, you never actually saw the document called a birth certificate proving that you were what you call yourself till you were going to get married yourself and you had to go to your own mother to get it. And yet... What a fool we should have been to say, well, you don't know whether your name is Jim Brown, then, after all. How do you know? Well, it's as out as anybody know. Good answer. He was brought up in a family. 
His parents called him that, his brothers called him that, they called him that at school, and it never surely crossed his mind that he ought to get evidence to prove it. He got all the evidence he wanted. So I'm saying these things so that we shall see that we haven't got to ransack libraries. We've got a few books here and there. But we couldn't stack them in this in the four walls of this chapel that would be necessary to get all these so-called evidences in concise terms to satisfy our need. And yet all the while there's one waiting that should be the final and complete answer to us all. And I bring that under the word discipleship. Discipleship. You say, what do you mean? What I say? I come to the New Testament and I see there the person of Christ. And his ministry starts when he was just over 30 years of age and he hadn't been speaking long before the people said he speaks as one having authority and not as the scribes. Because if you are acquainted with the rabbinical writings of the scribes, you will find they nearly always preface a remark they're going to make or a comment they're going to give or an interpretation as Rabbi so-and-so said. And it's on record that one of the great rabbis, I forget which one it was, Hillel, I think, possibly, but I may be wrong, he tried to break this. And for two days he tried to get a hearing in the conference and studiously avoided saying, as Rabbi so-and-so said. And they all purposely wouldn't listen to him. Till at last, he had to say, as Rabbi so-and-so. See, they were passing it down, this traditional teaching, that it always have must behind it what somebody else said. Now, we must not take the attitude that because a thing is traditional, it's necessarily wrong. There's no necessarity about it. If it is right and it's come down by tradition, well, it's still right. And if it's passed off as truth and it's wrong, well, it's still untrue. So we've got now to face this fact that our Saviour, when he spoke, something happened. He said to a man sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and walked. He did. He said to the winds and the waves, be still, and they were. He said to a man dead and buried in a tomb, Lazarus, come forth, and he did. Do you mean to tell me that I can believe that person and call him my saviour and say, but I don't agree with him? If it's monstrous to say, I couldn't do it, could I? I couldn't say, you know, I've trusted thee for all eternity, Lord. I trust thee for the forgiveness of sins. I trust thee for the gift of eternal life. But I'm afraid I've got to disagree with you as to whether Moses wrote the five books that are called by his name. Excuse me. It's impossible, isn't it? I couldn't possibly believe. And then he tells us that when he came, His name was the Word of God and he declared the Father. He said the Word that he gave them is the Word that God gave him. 
So if we're not careful, we shan't be merely bowing in the presence of the human Christ on earth and telling him we don't quite believe him. We should have to go beyond him and say, and the father that sent him, even the father in glory doesn't seem to quite know whether Moses ever lived or not. Which of course is only monstrously emphasising the need we have to remember that the final touchstone is Christ himself. So I'm going to now turn to the first scripture that I think will give us this, and that is John 13, verse 16. John 13, verse 16. Verily, verily, I say unto you, and don't forget, right through John's Gospel, you have this double Amen. In the original, it's not verily, it's the word Amen, said twice. And that means to say that the Lord is giving you a solemn statement. Amen. Amen, I say unto you. So here's one of them. The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. The servant is not greater than his Lord, Well, if my Lord lived and died and rose again and ascended and is now set down at the right hand and every one of those movements was all in harmony and fulfilling an Old Testament scripture, I remind myself that I, the servant, am not greater than my Lord. That he lived and died and rose again with that word of God in his heart and fulfilled it to the letter. And those who make a difference between the Old Testament and the New must remember that it was no New Testament that Christ could fulfil if he wanted to. For the New Testament couldn't have been written till Christ had died and gone. So the only Bible that we are dealing with in what we call the New Testament, the only Bible that's referred to is the Old Testament. And the Old Testament being proved to be true by Christ Well, the rest of it follows. You don't have to bother because if that's true, then the rest of it, which is a fulfilment, must be in the same category. In the chapter 15 of this same Gospel, we have something of the same emphasis. He says, um, verse 20 of chapter 15, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. And there's two other passages, if you like to find them, where there are other alternatives to this question, that he is Lord and you are servant and here's the consequences. But I think that's enough for our purpose. You and I would agree that if we own Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, we are under a moral obligation, or we're even under an obligation of common sense to say, and whatever was our Lord's Bible must be ours. You cannot have it both ways. You must take him and the book, or you must leave him and the book. For you'll never find him divorced from it, even in the agony of his last hours on the cross. He was quoting Psalm 22, and he fulfilled Psalm 16 when he was raised from the dead, and he fulfilled Psalm 110, when he ascended and sat down 
on the right hand of the majesty on high. And he will fulfill Zechariah chapter 14 when his feet stand in that uh, upon the Mount of Olives. So you'd have to wait a long time before there's no more scriptures to be fulfilled. In fact, you'll get to the end of time before the scriptures, when it says on the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, and then comes the glorious kingdom. Fulfilling all the time this wondrous word of God. Well now, I'll have to include in, in these studies, friends, you understand, references that we know so well and we've looked at before, uh, but uh, I have a wider congregation in mind than those who are sitting just in the pews of this chapel, and therefore I must make it as complete as I can. So we'll start with Luke 24, although I won't stop too long on the passage. Luke 24. And one of the reasons why I think we want to start with this is that it takes away a very uh, awkward statement that has been made sometimes. There are those who tell you that because Christ left the glory, became a man, was born a Galilean, or was brought up mainly as a Galilean in Nazareth, he never went to the schools, as they called it. How does this man know letters, having never learned? He was unlearned. But he was only just a peasant, a good living peasant. But he didn't know anything, and consequently he just accepted what was accepted at the time, and that's all it amounts to. But you see, when you get to Luke 24, the cross is over, the death is over, the burial is over, the resurrection is past. He's risen from the dead to die no more. And taking Luke 24 with the last chapter of John's Gospel, he said to the woman, Touch me not, for I have not yet ascended to my father. And yet a week after he said, Handle me and see. That may need a little careful handling in the meaning of it, but it looks as though in Luke 24 the risen Christ was ready to enter the presence of the Father. Are we going to say that the risen Christ only had the idea of an ordinary peasant about the Scriptures and it's not binding upon us? Well, if the risen Christ didn't know, who can know? Who can tell us? And this is what he said. First of all, in Luke 24, it says, verse 25, Luke 24, then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now how could he have done that if those things were not in the Old Testament scriptures? And if they were in the Old Testament scriptures, they must have been put there by God who sees the end from the beginning. Well, now you come to the same, in the same chapter, to a little further enlargement upon this. Verse 44. He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which was written in the law of Moses and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. So now he's given you the complete 
book of the Old Testament. If you like to look on the shelf, I think it's the second shelf over there, you'll see, I think, two copies at least of the Hebrew Bible. And even though you cannot read the Hebrew letters and you don't know which way they're going, uh, it doesn't matter, you'll see that on the outside of the Bible there are three words. And those three words are the Hebrew words which are here translated the law, the prophets, the psalms. The psalms standing for the books like psalms, proverbs, ecclesiastes, Job, all the poetry books all together called the psalms or the writings. But the point is that they were the three names that were given to the Old Testament scriptures by the very Pharisees and the scribes themselves. And he took that book at the beginning of his ministry. They gave him the book. He found the place. He read the portion in Isaiah. And he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And sat down. And now he takes the whole book. And he says, I'll show you all the things that have been fulfilled in Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. What a Bible study that would be, friends. Not merely to have the book, but to have him opening it. And then the one thing that not one of us can do for anybody else. Then opened he their understanding, that they might understand the Scriptures. Because I may do my bit, and trust in the Lord, and you do your bit there, and you trust, and then it may not always get over. It may not always enter, because of our own frailty. But here's the perfect teacher, and here's his, his agreement, that that book was accepted by him in its completeness. Now, as I say, my point is discipleship. I haven't got to be arguing about the canon of Scripture, and when was this added, and why was that left out, just simply say, friends, well, I don't know, because the man who's asking you doesn't know any more than you do. I mean, he pretends he does, and you, you, you've forgotten to get him into a corner over it. You don't know. But I'll say one thing, friend, I do know what. Well, I know that he knew. And as long as I stand where he stands, I shall be in line with the will of God. I'm warned in this book that I see now by means of a glass, darkly, Everything isn't crystal clear yet. But there are some things I know. And one of the things is that this saviour of mine has said that that Old Testament scripture is true. And he came and was born and he lived and he died and he rose again exactly in harmony with every word that was written by law and prophet and psalm. And if that doesn't prove it to be true, well, you might stand here to the day of doom and it'll make no difference. In fact, our Saviour knew the heart of men. He said, they have Moses and the prophets. If they will not hear them, neither would they believe though one should rise from the dead. That's the estimate he put on it. So I think we'll leave that for the time being and pass just to, a, it's still a survey, to individual names. John the fifth chapter. <coughs> I would draw your attention to the translation of verse 39. John the fifth chapter, verse 39. Our version tells us to search the scriptures. But exactly the same words could read, 
You do search the scriptures. I acknowledge it. Now you notice how that agrees. You search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. You see, with all our emphasis upon the scriptures, we must keep ever in mind that their supreme value is to take of the things of Christ and show them unto us. If they don't, well, they're making us a lot of learned people and filling our heads with all sorts of... One of these days, friends, you'll be able to read Jeremiah 36 right through without calling those people bad names. But when you can pronounce them all, You'll be no nearer to glory or salvation than if you have to say we'll barrow somebody do and make a better job of it. You see, it doesn't follow that because you know the letter of the word, it's what that word does with you. It makes you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So we, we're sure of that, that it must lead to Christ. Well now, coming to our subject back again, the last two verses of John 5. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. Well, that's a strange way around, isn't it? If you'd believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? So it's a two-way. Christ is inextricably mingled with Moses. So far as this truth of the word is concerned, Moses and Christ go together. To divorce them means to misunderstand both. And in either case, it's a tragedy. Well now, there's another name that comes uh, many times. Take the fourth chapter of Luke's Gospel. And that is the prophet Isaiah. It says in uh, verse 17 of chapter 4, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. You notice in the New Testament it's spelled E-S-A-I-A-S and in the Old Testament it's spelled with an I and ends with an H. And in both cases it is simply because we are trying to transliterate, trying to take over from another language with a different alphabet and we cannot do it exactly. And then in the Greek they change the ending and put an A-S and an O-S on the end. So we have Timotheus and Silas, and all these with an A-S or O-S on the end to make it a little bit more strange. I remember when I was in the United States, somebody interrupted me and said, you keep saying Isaiah, we say Isaiah. And then right bang in the middle of the recording they've got over there, there's my reply on the spur of the moment. I said, you say pyjamas and I say pyjamas. What's it matter? Isaiah wouldn't have answered to either of us for he spoke Hebrew and we don't. It's the man that matters. Now this man, Isaiah, they gave him the book of the prophet Isaiah and he found, opened the book and he found the place where it was written and he said, this day is this particular scripture fulfilled in your ears. There was his own, there was his own uh, forecast of his own ministry that he came to fulfill. I, the prophet Isaiah, Well, then if you'll turn to the book of uh, Matthew, there's two or three there that will occur together. We have in chapter 12, that very controversial person, book of Jonah. 
And there you'll see again that Jonah is spelled Jonas. A-S. Doesn't make any difference. That's the man. Verse 40 in chapter 12. Verse 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, I'm so constructed that if it could be proved that it was absolutely impossible for Jonah to be three days and three nights in the whale's belly, then I should say it's absolutely impossible for me to believe any more about it. For our Saviour has linked his resurrection and all about it with that incident, hasn't he? They go together. I don't see how any person with common decency could say, oh, I believe the New Testament, but I've got no place for the book of Jonah. That doesn't sound like common sense. <clears throat> and some say it's only an allegory. It's only a story. It's one of those fertile imaginations, you see. So it says, and the men of Nineveh who never existed, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Because they repented the preaching of Jonah, who didn't exist. These people didn't exist and they had a repentance that didn't exist. And behold, a greater than Jonah is here. A greater what? You see, if you do not believe it, what problems you bring up in, in its turn? Well, I'm not going to defend the story of Jonah. It's got its own defence. As you read it, the Lord prepared a great fish. So if it could be proved that no whale could ever swallow anybody, doesn't say so. It says the Lord prepared a fish to do the work. It says so in the book. And yet you've only got to read the cruise of the Cachalot or one of those books to know that a man who's spent his life on the sea says, I've looked down the throat of a whale that not only swallow me, the boat as well. And then on top of that, it's not a whale at all. It's a whale of a job altogether to get some of these people to tow the line, isn't it? When the authorised version was written, any monster in the deep was a whale. And we still continue the same story. We still use the word whale, if you indulge in figures of speech, of something very big. Simply a great monster, a great fish, and it need not be any particular type of whale at all. But our point is, Jonah. Now it says, as Jonah, and the greater than Jonah is here. So our Saviour endorsed the book of Jonah. And if you look at chapter 24, you'll see another prophet that is not very acceptable among the critics. In verse uh, 15, <coughs> Matthew 24, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. And the Lord is taking it all literally. He says, when you see that take place, you flee to the mountains because this is the day of trouble. For verse 21, there shall be a great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world of this time, no, nor ever shall be. He's not saying, oh, nobody can take, can make anything out of these peculiar monsters that figure in the dreams of Daniel, figures of gold and silver and animals with three heads and I don't know any, you see? 
Well, he said, they're, they're all pathetic of truth that's to come. And there's something to be acted upon. When you see this take place, flee because the rest of it's going to take place. As God said, without diminution, without alteration. <coughs> well then, <coughs> with regard to scriptures generally, I've touched upon a few names. You can go and add more. David is spoken of by name and other writers of the Old Testament. But for instance, supposing I don't turn to any scripture now because it takes time. Just remind ourselves and you know where to find them. You get, first of all, that wonderful passage in Hebrews the 10th chapter. After saying that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin, it says, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume of the book it is written of me. And the word volume there doesn't necessarily mean the bulk of the book as we would think of it. It's the word that means the little heading. Like you get in chapter 8 of the epistle to the Hebrews, of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. (coughs) Because if you had a scroll, the easiest way to discover what is in the scroll is not undoing it and having it all over the place. Look at the yards of it. It's to have it on the back so that you can just read on the back the name of it. That's what they did. They sometimes stuck them on the back and there is a possibility that the label that was stuck on the epistle to the Hebrews came off. Have you ever thought of that? Not that it wasn't signed, but it, it may have come off. We don't know. We don't know those things. But it says in Hebrews that in the summing up of the book, that is to say, in the summing up of the scriptures, it's written of me, said Christ. Well, it's only what he said earlier. It's written of me. A body hast thou prepared me. Do you think of that? That is Christ before birth. Now, not one of us can ever put ourselves in that position. Some of us have been told by our mothers what we got up to the moment we did come into this world with a good yell or whatever as it was that showed we were alive and kicking. But here's one who intelligently could say before his birth, a body hast thou prepared me, lo, I come. And then where did he come? Was he the king of glory going to be limited by any one particular spot a spot on this earth? Yes, friends, he was. The limitations of the Most High are some of the most wonderful things in the book. He was going to limit himself to be born in no other place than Bethlehem, for it was written already by an Old Testament prophet. And so Joseph and Mary come all the way across country. Caesar Augustus sends out a decree that makes them come and he doesn't know a word about it and they don't know why they're going and they get to Bethlehem and it's full up because everybody who belongs to Bethlehem have got there to sign their name. It was a census being taken and there our Saviour was born in an inn or in a a crib, in a stable, but it was in Bethlehem. For it is written. And so you go right through the book. Bethlehem, or any other incident you'd like to put on, you find that very soon, whatever he did or said, had got behind it or beneath it, 
or in front of him the fulfilling of some word of the living God. I hardly like in this series to get as far as the cross of Christ. It seems to me that if you haven't got now in your heart and mind that this book is true, we ought not to intrude there. But you know how it's written. That there's more crowded into those chapters, that last two chapters of these Gospels than in the rest. The actual mode of his trial, like a sheep before a shearer's dumb, opening not his mouth. They pierce my hands and my feet. They cast knots upon my vesture. He cried the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I verily believe that when he got to the words of that same Psalm 22, where it says, The kingdom is the Lord's. The poor dying thief who had been listening to me couldn't stop himself. He said, Lord, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. Faith could see beyond that dying man for the moment. The coming king. And in the last words of Psalm 22, in our version read, He hath done this. And the word this is in italics, leave it out. The last words of Psalm 22 are, He hath done. And on the cross, the last words practically of Christ were, It is finished. And in some languages, you wouldn't be able to distinguish, He hath done from it is finished. A work that he came to do, a word that he came to fulfill, all reached their climax when he died the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Now this would not be accepted as a very learned disquisition on the proof that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, but who cares? If I've brought you to the feet of Christ, if I've made you feel uneasy, if there's ever crossed your mind a thought that perhaps this book or that book or the other book could be set aside as untrue, or I hope it's all back again, friends, and you're willing, where you cannot always prove, to say, but I know one who was sure, and I stand in his strength, I stand where he stands, his Bible shall be my Bible. We've often said what a wonderful uh, exhibition of faithfulness those precious words recorded in the book of Ruth are, Where thou goest, I will go. Where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy God shall be my God, you know. Well, say it all over again. Say, what thou believest, I believe. That Bible shall be my Bible. You see, that's what we've got to do. So I say, at the beginning, it's not only scholarship we need. Have as much of that as you can get, friends. I wish I had more. But you can sometimes rub along without it. But discipleship, that goes deeper. And we are following him, even though we'll never be able to get into the same stride that he had. We should at least be following him and not turning our backs upon him. May the Lord bless us, not only in this little gathering this evening, but bless all of you who in distant parts will be sharing in this ministry, that you may be quickened and strengthened and given some sort of satisfaction to feel that there is no need to apologise for this blessed book 
And this you're going to apologise for the Son of God himself. For the living word and the written word keep pace together.